You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are back with Agatha Christie once again. Of course we are. It's that time of year. The detective blog's equivalent of doing one's taxes. <laughs> Look, we have to do at least one of these a year, preferably two. <laughs> Christie is the dominant force as I'm concerned, in, in all of history. We've we've slowly so. been working our way through the Christie classics. We've done a couple of Poirots. We've done a standalone. Mm. We haven't done Tuppence yet, but it is time to finally <laughs> break ground on Miss Jane Marple with The Body in the Library, <laughs> chapters one to eight. The Body in the Library. Yes. Well, I mean... I guess let's let's talk about that, shall let's talk about Miss Marple Please. and how little she appears. Because <laughs> when I was reading through this novel, right, I was trying to divide up the chapters equally. So we have, you know, a good amount of time mm-hmm. spent on every piece of the puzzle and the story and the characters. And there are as as usual, there are way too many characters. I feel like it's it's as always. It's more important for me to say when there aren't enough characters than when there's too many, because there's always too there's many. There's always too but many. Miss Marple hardly appears at all until chapter eight and i felt we had to include chapter eight because that's when the detective is finally actually on the case yes um obviously she's there as emotional support to mrs banshee whose house the body is sorry whose house the library is in in Mm -hmm. which the body is discovered by the house servants yes uh and she's there to to, be supportive but apart from that miss jane marple uh mostly says innocuous things and stares at people for the first third of this novel, which is entertaining, but I'd, I'd like to pick her brain a little bit, you know? Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting portrayal because I think based on how much presence characters like Poirot have in their respective detective series, we expect the same of other detectives. And, you know, maybe it will start to expand. Maybe we'll see a lot more of Miss Marple in the back half of this novel. But so far... If you didn't know who Miss Marple was by context, you would assume she was set dressing at this point. Because this is the the second, uh, as I said, the second proper book that Miss Marple is is encased within. There have been some short story collections that Chrissy had written by his time, but a bit about ten years yeah. between the last proper book and this one. And I almost feel as though Chrissy had been holding off writing about her because you can only do the you know, the, the old lady who seems very innocuous yeah. knows everything. You can only do that particular rabbit trick so many times and in so many ways. So trying to have Miss Marple, you know, do that trick again, uh, ostensibly, is a bit of a challenge. And and yeah, I feel like Christy tried to manage it by simply introducing more detectives, more Watsons. Yeah. Um, we've got Henry Clithering and the, all the different policemen to kind of give us a a different sort of focus, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's also really interesting because there's so much charm that still comes out of all of the characters in this novel. I mean, one of the things I loved about this book is all of the times that Christie didn't say something, like when the first police officer is questioning uh, the Bantries, and instead of describing the Bantries' response to the accusation that they might have done the murder, she just says, he exploded, Mm -hmm. and then the scene continues after his explosion. It's so funny. And there's... All of these like great little nods where we get to see so much happening with so little active, like actually descriptive language. And I think it's just kind of the right fit for a detective of the pace that we've had so far of Miss Marple. And especially as it's set for the first part and, and for the most part, I think, in a in a like a yeah. quiet village. Like there's a lot of gossip mongers uh who kind of take the story around the village. 
and so knowing uh, when to spotlight a character and when to simply give kind of a, a gloss over of a, of a certain scene or a character moment is important. And in particular, when it comes to Mr. Bantry, we see him in the opening scenes. Of course, the the focus is on Mrs. Bantry having her her lovely dream that is woken up by the nightmare of a of a murder, which she actually really enjoys, which is which is great, right? That's the that's like the fun part about Mrs. Bantry is that she's actually very excited to have a body in her library, like in the detective books. Yes. Um, but Mr. Bantry goes off to like be very sad and depressed. <laughs> With his pigs. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> He's kind line. of a ridiculous character. I feel bad for him. I, I did actually wonder. I want to say, but I don't remember from where, that the Bantries have appeared elsewhere in Christie canon. I didn't want to search that up because I didn't want to find any spoilers, but could you enlighten me at all on that, Herds? It looks like she appeared in a story called The Thirteen Problems, uh-huh. which is uh, a short story collection by Agatha Christie that was published back in 1932. So again- about 10 years before The Body in the Library came out. So this, this is a recurring character. Uh, I haven't read those stories, but it is interesting. And according to what I'm looking at here, she appears in a couple other stories later down the line. Um, I guess the kind of gossipy wife who is secretly waiting for a murder to happen and very excited yeah. is kind of a good trope for Christy to lean on. Yeah, I, I know for certain as well that uh, Sir Henry Clithering is a regular appearance in a lot of Christie's work. Yes. I think the the first one I read him in, though, it's definitely not in chronological order, is A Murder is Announced. That sounds right. I was... Yeah eons ago that i read that so i really can't say much about his characterization changing between the two i i like him a lot because his function in the story he obviously doesn't really come until chapter eight but he's he's called up by uh conway jefferson mm. who is the uh the, the rich old man who was going to bequeath fifty thousand pounds yeah to the, the the victim and so obviously someone's you know most likely killed her to to keep those pounds away from her um and jefferson calls up sir henry clithering because he thinks well I need to have someone I can trust on the case. And then Henry says, well, I know this old lady uh, who's really cool and really good at murder. Just, just so happens to be around. And happens to be nearby. And Jefferson, Conway Jefferson is just like, that's ridiculous. I can't possibly believe that. And uh, like, I haven't read the, the first uh, Jane Marple book, but the way they describe that story in, in this book is, and then, you know, Miss Marple handed me a piece of paper and it had the name of, of the murder on it. And by golly, she was right. Yes. I'll never know how she did it, but she did it. <laughs> I do. I do like that. I think the other thing that's really fun about it is, you know, after Death in the Nile came out, the Kenneth Branagh adaptation we spoke about earlier this year, there were so many people complaining that it takes so long for the mystery to actually get started. Uh, and I guess yep. that's something that Christie has kind of always done with bits and pieces like this, like not really introducing our detective duo until we've had seven chapters of other random well, police officers investigating. That said, one of my favorite things about this novel is that we literally wake up and there's a body in the library. I know. Which is, of course, a, a trope that, that Christie is familiar with. It's something that's been in murder mystery stories you know before she started to tackle it and by my understanding is that she was kind of sick of these body in the library mysteries being about a crazy library she wanted to focus more on the body and on the characters who who you know, could have a body show up in their library. Yeah, I mean, we've just come off the back of reading the metafictional catastrophe that was Solari Gentil's The Woman in the Library. And it, it's a very different change of pace. Like there is a bit of a small metafictional nod that we've had so far where Peter basically says, <laughs> oh, yes, Peter, I've got all yes. of the signatures of all of the best detective authors, including Agatha Christie <laughs> and Sir John Dixon Carr. And yeah. it's like, oh, she's my favorite. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. It's truly terrible. <laughs> 
But I, I do yeah. like that. That there's almost like a, a sense of perhaps traditionalist rebellion in Christie, like uh-huh. saying, you know what, we're uh, we're sticking here. We're doing the old trite, hackneyed tropes and seeing if we can actually kind of reinvent them. Well, that's that's and, Christie's intent, isn't it? Of course. Yeah, mm. it very much feels in the kind of modern spirit of a lot of classic kind of golden age reimaginings that we've been looking at over the past few years. And it's kind of nice to see that the the tradition is tried and true, let's say. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me, I think. I think that the other thing that's really fascinating about this is the way that we go about, like, setting the different scenes for this novel. You know, it's, it's far from a country house murder. We're going between different towns. The police even complain that there's, like, too many people on the case. It's like, God, it's so hard to get all this information between departments. It's like it's a very fluid novel in terms of how it moves from set to set. And I think it does a really good job of keeping up the pace of a novel wherein kind of not really much happens aside from Basil, not Basil, uh, whose cargo is missing? Oh, Bartlett? Bartlett, that's right. The the nervous wreck yes. that is George Bartlett, my favorite character. Bartlett, Bartlett <laughs> definitely him. is a bit over-described to me. Oh, He's no. Agatha Christie tries a bit too hard to phoneticize his speech, and it it's a little clumsy, but I suppose that's also the point. Well, that's, I mean, yeah, exactly. It seems overblown, and so you're kind of caught between, I mean, look, we're not at the mystery section yet, but we're caught <laughs> between the two interpretations, right? Like, is this guy really this stupid, or is he overacting? It's hard to tell. And <laughs> He's honestly, like, of course I don't way. park my car in a garage. It seems such a shame. Also, it's gone missing. One, two, three. That's the same combination I have on my luggage. Like, <laughs> great Bartlett. No wonder everything you have is being stolen from you. I know. <laughs> and I mean, that piece of characterization that he has the like generic cheap car that of, of the year. I love that. I love that aspect. Yeah. It's also because, because we're dealing with this like clearly affluent nightclub. So the kind of setup is that everyone there is a little bit well off. And so Bartlett comes in and he's saying like, oh yeah, you know, I've got the Minoan 14. And then there's an author's aside where Christie's like, oh yeah, everyone's buying that one. It's like, he's not hot stuff. It, it kind of sets up the characters because, you know, there are clearly you know, multiple Minoan 14s yes. around that, you know, and at the nightclub, there might be other patrons who are using that particular car, that sort of thing. It's it kind of characterizes the people that attend this club as being a bit, uh, a bit silly, a bit cheap, a bit put on. Uh, which of course reflects well the gossip mongering of the people in the village. And even though these are two distinct locations, you kind of get the idea that everyone's putting on a little bit of an act, even the people that aren't directly involved. Yeah, tell you what though, coming coming off the back of uh, Solari's novel, the one thing that did really stand out to me is the fact that we announced that a flaming wreckage of a Minoan 14 has been found not long after Bartlett declares his missing. Mm. And then we spend an entire chapter not dealing with it, which is like so different from the very immediate way that Solari deals with her complications. And I kind of love that. It's like, oh yeah, there's a burning wreck of a car on fire. We'll get to that eventually. It's almost an offhand mention of this, like this car and this charred body inside. Like we're clearly (laughs) setting up you know, a further piece of the mystery here. It's like, if this wasn't a murder mystery, the body inside would be like, oh no, what another unrelated tragedy. But like, this is obviously the plan, right? Well, like it's obviously connected, right? Like if there's multiple murders in this village around this area, we've already got the investigation going on. There has to be some terrible plot or scheme. Yes. Being enacted. Yes. There's so much confoundment in that sense as well. Like, just from a characterization side, before we even get to the mystery part of it, which we will shortly, the fact that the Bantries are like 
interconnected with everyone going on in the crime, but not with anything going on in the crime other than the body. That is an excellent point because something that's brought up multiple times is the fact that uh, Colonel Melchett, the guy who's like in charge investigation, yeah. he keeps trying to shield Mr. Bantry. And obviously we're kind of feeling very sorry for him with this body and his pigs that he takes comfort in. But like, <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of absurd. And his his colleagues keep calling out for it. They're like, why do you keep protecting Mr. Bantry? We need to investigate him. He dined at the like dame out the, the the club or whatever. He dined there like last week. We need to investigate every avenue. Isn't that our is job? It, is it Melchett that has that fantastic chat with Bantry where he's like now- Arthur, were you improper with that woman? I'm not saying you did. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. He he opens up with him. He's like, I'm not saying that you murdered her, but if you had some trouble, better to have it come out now yeah. than later on when I have to prosecute you. <laughs> like, he's very- It's such a comic uh, scene. He's, yeah. He's great. I, I really enjoy that dynamic. And I love Melchett as like our point of view here because he has such a personal stake in this case in either condemning Bantry or exonerating him. Yeah, right? it's also like we don't really establish what their relationship is other than positive. Well, so we, we know they're both colonels. Yeah. So there's probably some military relationship. Definitely. There, yes. yeah, that's what I was getting yes. towards is that like, you know, I enjoy that again, we don't spend time explaining that because the actions speak for themselves. And I just, I, I really appreciate it. Not to get too bogged down in the war, but this this novel is kind of notable for having very few direct mentions to the the Great War. Yeah, and and in adaptations of this uh, of this novel, the the plane crash that is said to have killed uh, Conway's family and and rendered him without legs. Yeah. Uh, that a lot of adaptations change it to say they were killed in like a bombing, <laughs> like the World War II bombing, because it's an obvious tie together. Yeah, and right? I mean, this book came out in like what the middle of the war, right? It was like nineteen forty two. Nineteen forty two, I want to yeah. say. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a there's there's a there's a level of escapism to how nice and pleasant everything going on in this story is. Real, like broadly speaking, murders aside. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, I suppose. We should probably wrap this discussion here and get to the mystery. Herds, I've I've come with a treat. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh, what's the treat? Tell me, Flex. Well, Herds, I mean, you know, back way back at the start of the show, 2019, we uh, oh debuted with Father Ronald Knox's Three Taps. Is it a fishing line? And I, I feel like over the years, we've just been, you know, <laughs> it's become an afterthought to use Knox's decalogue. You know, we, we bring it up often enough, but I think I've finally been able to use it to solve a mystery. Okay. I'm excited for that. I'm looking forward to seeing you use Knox to, to actually do something, you know, good here, to actually uh, apply it practically. That's the hope, anyway. I'm excited. I'm excited. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And we'll be back with more of The Body in the Library in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here with The Body in the Library on your Murder Mystery World Tour, chapters one to eight from this Agatha Christie quote-unquote classic. I feel like The Body in the Library, (laughs) Herds, is one of those novels that isn't a classic in and of itself, but it's just, Uh it's, its identity has kind of permeated the culture. You know, we have like the bodies from the library series that we had, uh, an excerpt from Jim Noy's The Invisible Event on with Tony Medawa, who's been curating that collection for a few years. You know, we've just gone through Solari Gentil's book. There's like, you know, it's a very present book in the consciousness, but I don't necessarily think it's particularly high up in the Christie canon. I mean, like Christie, like I mentioned this in the in the first part, but 
Christy started writing this novel because she wanted to tackle a trope that she was already well familiar with. But of course, as as most authors have used the nature of a library to confound and confuse, you know, the witness might be behind a bookshelf or there might be some staircases that go off to nowhere or to Narnia or whatever, you know, all sorts of strange things can happen in a library. It's a very exotic place after all. Christy is looking to kind of put a, put a spin on that premise. Uh, and of course, that influence is carried into the ages. I'm curious to see how you use uh, the, the Noxian rules, as you mentioned, to to solve this one, because I assume you're going to talk about the genie in the closet, the supernatural agency that is uh, allowing this crime to occur, because otherwise, I'm, I'm sure it's quite impossible. Absolutely not. Oh, I hoped it would be a yes there. But yeah. T- <laughs> the rule we are playing reveal? on here, long forgotten, oft undiscussed, is the 10th rule. The twin brothers and doubles generally must not appear unless we have been duly prepared for them. Oh my goodness. You told me there are twins? Is there a Conway Jefferson twin? Is that what's no happening? Herds, Who has legs? Who can kill? Could you ex- get, r- riddle to me in as few words as possible, Herds, <laughs> the purpose uh-huh. of Basil Blake in this story? He's a film guy. Look, I could not tell you entirely his purpose, but he's a film guy. Now that's that's who that's who he is, but what is he to this story, he, uh You know, he's there to tell us about high society and how it has no place in the village. Yeah, obviously. I mean, what, what does he much, do yeah. in high society? Mm, I think you'll have to tell me that one, Flex, because I don't want to give it to you much. He pisses off platinum blondes. Ooh, interesting, interesting. We have established from the very beginning confoundment of this case, with Basil Blake being a suspect and aggressor against uh, Colonel Arthur, that there is a case of mistakable platinum blondness going on. There is uh, Dinah Lee is the name of the character who comes up and storms the discussion while the police are there interrogating Basil Blake at first. And he ends ends the scene with the line, something to the effect of, as you can see, my platinum blonde is in order. (laughs) Well, they are a dime a dozen after all. It's true. I do note some some characters do say they wish that uh, Dinah Lee had been the one to be killed. (laughs) Not a very nice thing to say about a woman. It's not at all, but maybe they are she old is the body in the burning wreck of a car. Nah, that that's ridiculous. It is ridiculous because it is in fact Ruby. Mm. What in the car? In the car. Interesting, because I was under the impression that Ruby was found in the library. We've had her body identified. As we such. did have her body identified, but who did the identification of her body herds? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Miss Marple, who is, of course, objectively correct about everything. Oh, of course. Very good. No, it's Josie, who is the, I don't know, the, the, the house patron, the appeaser of people. She's the, like, she, so she's a dancer, but it seems like she has some saying, like, coordinating the other dancers. Like, yeah. she, her, her story is that she, like, cricked her ankle while running over some swimming pools near the beach or something, some rocks, yep, whatever. Don't run at the pool, And kids. so she asked, so she asked Ruby to uh, kind of dance in her place. Yeah. Which is what has led to the Jefferson situation, which we should probably talk about at some point. I, I think so. Basically, Ruby has been uh, the, the star entertainer of Conway mm. Jefferson, who has developed a sparkling interest in young people as a yes. uh, an opportunity to recapture his youth now that he is disabled. He's disabled and he lost his family in the same incident, of course, which he lost his legs in. Yes. To that end, he has uh, adopted two children? No. He's offering to adopt Ruby, but he has 
his daughter-in-law. That's it. And his son-in-law staying and caring for him. Mm, that's right. There's Mark Gaskell, who is the husband of the late Rosamond Jefferson and Adelaide Jefferson, the widow of the late Frank Jefferson. There we go. And up until chapter seven, I thought that they were a couple. Can I tell you, I also <laughs> was a little confused. I thought for a time that that was the case. And then I thought maybe there are, there are way more of these characters running around. I was like, where is, you know, uh, Adelaide Jefferson's like husband yeah. or, or Suter or like what's going on there. It's, it's a little unclear in, in the sense that there are just a lot of characters and a lot to take in, but please tell me, tell me what's going on. I here. think, I think it's meant to be intentional that they seem like they're in a couple because I think the glitch is that it's actually Josie who is sweet on Mark Gaskell. And I think they did it. Okay. You think that they're, they're a couple? Yes. Secretly. Interesting. Okay. Because the, like the thing the thing about all of this, right, is that we established during chapter eight and why it was kind of revealing that they weren't in a couple is that the will that was going to let Ruby get 50,000 pounds inheritance, which was a lot of money in the day, uh, was going to be changed, which would be unfavorable to the other inheritors of Jefferson's will. Yes. And I think that Josie and Mark Gaskell have gone after that money uh, using their secret coupleness and Josie's ah. general trusting nature to get away with it. Because okay. we spend a lot of time with Josie establishing that, you know, she can calm down the bridge patrons. She can keep anyone entertained. All of the other dancers trust her and will follow her every beck and call. And she is the one who identifies the body. I guess I guess my question is then, you, you think that Mark Gaskell and Josie are like secretly a couple and they've conspired. Do you think there's anybody else in this conspiracy? Any house servants? Any other characters? Well, I was originally finding it really confusing because I thought it was going to be Adelaide. But no, I, I actually think that they kind of got away with this mostly by themselves. Mostly? What's the mostly there? You know, they would have needed, for example, to steal a car. They may have managed to, for example, coax a cab driver to transport okay. one of the bodies to the crime scenes. But I don't think that either of those things is impossible. Well, that's what I'm curious about because you've you've said you think you know the who. It's Mark and Josie. Yeah. And you've said that you think that Ruby Keen is in the burning car that's that's been mentioned. The time that it would have taken Ruby to get from where she was last seen to where her body was found would have been very last minute. But if it's a body double, going back to my opening point here, and she is the one in the burning wreck, then we have a near perfect alibi for the two culprits of this crime. So I guess I guess we should address the body in the room. Uh, who 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 is the body then in the library? The titular body. We have a missing persons list with a young girl who disappeared the night before. And there is no way that is not involved in a murder mystery novel. <laughs> yes. It is absolutely Pamela Reeves, the young girl, who admittedly was described as having brown hair, but we do bring up the term peroxide blonde a few times in the novel, and I think we've kind of covered it with okay. that. That makes sense to me. I think that that, as crazy as that sounds, you know, a body switch in a murder mystery novel, I think that does that <laughs> does fit, and it does clean up the alibis quite nicely. Really, you could clean up any sort of alibi with that kind of outrageous claim. <laughs> I guess my question is, do you think you could outline the events that happened on the night? Like, because we've got two bodies then, 
who's who's our killer, right? Like what what is that what does that look like? So I'm going to have to assume that Gaskill is the one that choked the body in the library, which is the observed state of death. Okay. But I have to presume that they somehow got her there subdued. Sure. I wasn't able to find any like noteworthy incidents of drugging through the book in scanning back over my last reread, but my guess is that they somehow subdued Pamela into being drugged and knocked out or like coming onto into the Bantry's house under false pretenses uh, and then strangling and leaving her body there. Yeah, I guess my other question is why, and I'll, I'll probably put a point on this. I'm going to warn you now. I think, I think this is a spontaneous thing. I think I'm putting a point on this. Why is this body who you say is Pamela Reeves, the 16-year-old girl who went missing, why on earth is Pamela Reeves in the Banshee's library? Why why is this the location? It seems like like there are some light connections between Bantry and Colonel Melchett and Bantry and Mr. Jefferson apparently know each other from a long time ago. There is and, and Bantry dined at the night the, at the hotel of the nightclub. Like there are some little connectors there, but what is the murder mystery reason? I don't have for you a solid answer to this question, but I do have a good lead on it. Sure. And that is that Josie seems very surprised about where the body is when she is brought to the scene. I think it was meant to be somewhere else. I would almost wager Basil. Like, I think that might be his other role in the story, that he was the intended target. You know, maybe Mark was told to, like, follow a patron home and followed the wrong car. Uh, for example, because it's established that the Bantries were at the club the other night, um, or maybe it's just that their their houses are a similar description, you know, standing alone a little bit outside the village, a little upper class. I'm not exactly sure, but I think it is a missed mark is essentially the summary of it. And I guess just in terms of uh, the, the other Jeffersons in the story, there's Peter, who's into murder mysteries, um, and, and Adelaide Jefferson and Conway Jefferson, they've all played a well, I mean, we, I don't think we've seen Adelaide Jefferson yet, but but Conway Jefferson and Peter Carmody, we've had bring clues to us and summon shadowy figures onto the scene. Do you think that they <laughs> play into this situation at all? Do you think there are some skeletons in the closet for those characters? Because obviously the Jeffersons, like, I mean, you, you've talked about Josie a lot, but she, she seems to, you know, she doesn't like the Jeffersons very much, it seems, based on what we've kind of understood here. Do you think that there's some skeletons? She doesn't She doesn't like the Jeffersons sure. collective, I think. She, I, I think that's more her ire towards the risk of losing the inheritance she was hoping to get by marrying Mark. Yeah, okay, that's, that's what I'm curious about, because if you're saying that she's into Mark, then the ire has to be towards Conway and or Adelaide. And I guess, yeah, I'm just curious if you have any, like, skeletons in the closet there. I... I don't know if they have any other skeletons in the closet that are motivating this crime, but in terms of the people that they're bringing onto the scene, I think that we've had a lot of contextual information brought about, for example, the cases of, like, Miss Harbottle for being gossiped about where she was living in terms of, like, you know, the misplacement and people generally having a poor understanding of the countryside. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite as solid on that, but I don't think that they're, I, I don't think that that is the primary motivating factor. Yeah, I, and I guess um, the only other thing I, I could probably poke you on is Miss Marple. Um, she has not had a huge presence in the story. <laughs> you say as though she didn't hound me directly onto what I'm <laughs> saying is the motive in her one detective scene. Except, except for that one scene. <laughs> I, 
yes, well, I, I suppose my, uh, my my question is because Miss Marple, she kind of is just following uh, Mrs. Mrs. Banshee around. She's kind of saying things pointedly where she can. What what part do you think she has to play in this story as it goes on? I think that Miss Marple is going to be able to smell a rat is the short of it, because I'm saying that the big missing piece of this puzzle is that Josie is lying and Josie is being trusted very much in the same way as Melchit is trusting the Bantry. Yeah, Bantry. Sure. yeah there's, there's no real reason for anyone to trust her, but everyone seems to be taking her at her word. And I think that... Miss Marple is going to be the uh, have the gossiping talent to smell a rat in that. <laughs> well, that is her, her main talent, is it to, to gossip and to be gossiped at? Exactly, it's an yeah, easy. Yeah, that makes pick. sense to me. Thank you. <laughs> that's all right. I think there's enough detail there for me to to kind of get a feel for where you are in this mystery. So that's exciting. I feel like that's that's all the questions that I have for you without leading you too far. I know it's going to be very stressful coming up with my real. I know theory next because week. this is such a ridiculous fake theory that could possibly be anywhere close to the truth. <laughs> So I'm excited to hear your real theory going <laughs> Me forward. Me too. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready for it. Thanks, Flex. You're welcome, Herds. <laughs> anyway, I think that'll about do us for the discussion uh, for this week. Uh, we will be back next week with more, more Body in the Library by Agatha Christie, where we will be covering chapters 9 to 13. Uh, just a, a short amount yes. of chapters next week, but I think any further. Dangerous territory. There would be no doubt. So, yeah, it's one of those, one of those fun little things. Well, Herds, thank you for bringing us through the body in the library. I've been having lots of fun with this book. It is. You're talking like it's like you're at the end, but yeah, sure. <laughs> I know. It, it's, it's, so far, it's far from my favorite Christie, but it is still a firm reminder of why Christie is so good, you know? For sure, for sure. Either way, this is Death of the Reader. We'll be back, as Herds said, with chapters 9 to 13 of the body in the library next week. Stick around. You're on 2SER 107.3.